the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to our second live stream during this live stream marathon that began uh, a little over an hour ago with our two traditional parts for Let Us Reason, part one, part two. In the last live stream, we had uh, Sister Daughter of Christ and also we had uh, Brother Nasser, and we talked about our own experience as former Muslims concerning fasting and the month of Ramadan and the implications of that. Uh, even after we accepted Christ and how we view it now versus in the past. Well, today, uh, I am so pleased uh, to tell you that during this uh, second live stream, and for those of you who are joining us uh, through our radio podcast, Let Us Reason, this will be part one. We have a special guest who is also joining us uh, in this live stream, our brother Anthony Rogers, who is no stranger to many of you, uh, as uh, you have met him before uh, in his own channel and also his own work with others. And, uh, you know, I am uh, honored and humbled by the fact that he also agreed to come and do work with us as well. Today is one of those uh, amazing moments to have our dear brother and teacher of the Word of God, Anthony Rogers. And uh, before I dive into the topic, I want to welcome Brother Anthony. Uh, Anthony, thank you so much, brother, for being here with us. Uh, it's really amazing that technology can make this happen. Yeah, and thank you so much. Uh, as you know, I'm always delighted to be on with you. So it's, I always think it's my honor, but uh, I'm, I'm always surprised to hear you say it's yours. So oh, it's great you. to be with you. Great to address all the people uh, that watch your channel. Thank you so much, brother. Uh, of course, this is, will be part one of two parts, a live stream. And uh, the topic that uh, Anthony, and rightfully so, have suggested has to do with something that he and I are going to do later on this year by way of recording a multiple video series on what we call Mark's Christology or the Christology of the Gospel of Mark, put it this way. The reason why this is important, folks, is that at least I speak from a Muslim background. Now, Anthony will make the argument that it's not just Muslims who use Mark. Others as well, in Christians in general, should be familiar with this. And there is heretical also forms of Christianity that somehow use Mark to their advantage. And the argument Muslims use, for instance, is that if you use the Gospel of Mark, you're not going to find the divinity of Jesus in there. More so, they would argue, as some did in the past, and maybe some even do, and I don't even know what Shabir Ali's position on it anymore, is that the uh, Mark's Christology 
does not really speak of a divine person. Uh, it's a later development in the other Gospels leading to the Gospel of John that revealed Jesus to us as if he is a divine person. In other words, there has been an evolution, if you wish. So they love the Gospel of Mark because they can prove the humanity of Christ in there uh, because they, in their mind, they think it matches with the Islamic teachings of who Jesus was according to the Quran. Not to mention, of course, that uh, many, you know, in general believe that the Gospel of Mark is the earliest out of all the Gospels. Again, I will let Anthony answer this because I've read so many different views on that as well. And some even believe, like liberal theologians, believe that Mark possibly would have been the source text for the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Obviously, for me, the source text for any gospel is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But that uh, that aside, people always like to come up with their own ways of trying to explain things that are hard for them to comprehend. With that in mind, brother, let's uh, welcome you again. And thank you for making suggestions about this topic. Today, of course, is going to be a teaser. And we have about 20 minutes left for part one, obviously. So within this 20 minutes... Um, what is it about the Gospel of Mark that uh, is going to be important and powerful to refute arguments and to present the divinity of Christ as well? Yeah, so to enter into this and, and really have a good idea of what's going on in order to make sense out of it, we have to recognize the Old Testament background, mm -hmm. which not just Mark, but all of the Gospels, all of the writings of the New Testament uh, have in view when they're they're saying what they are. Are. Uh, and here we need to remember that without controversy, the most significant or momentous event of the Old Testament period uh, to which the people of God of old looked as the definitive event in redemptive history was God's deliverance of his people at Passover night through the Red Sea into the wilderness where they were then led in the way of the Lord to the mountain of God. And this, this whole scheme in the Exodus account is basically portraying a return, if you will, to the Eden-like conditions where God originally dwelled with his people. A lot of people don't know that Eden, according to the Old Testament, when you follow out all that the Old Testament says, is the picture that's presented is of Eden being kind of like a mountaintop paradise where God dwelt with his people. You get this imagery later of Eden being situated on a mountain, and then you have the waters that come down from from you know Eden and, and flow outward. But uh, uh, so because man was kicked out of the garden as a result of sinning against God, and they're sent eastward, the the whole picture of the Exodus is something of God returning man to that original primeval condition. But all of this was, of course, just a, a picture, a type of the ultimate redemptive work that God was going to do. You know, the redemption from Egypt was significant, but it was really just a temporal deliverance from physical captivity <clears throat> and, you know, domination to a foreign earthly power. But the true salvation that needed to be accomplished that the Old Testament speaks of is God's deliverance of people from sin, Satan, and death. So that's what's being pictured in the Exodus. And what's interesting is the prophets, when they started to speak about that future redemption that God was going to accomplish, they borrowed terminology from the Exodus. 
Right. The exodus to them was sort of the paradigm for that future work. And that's why if you look at rabbinic writings, for example, they would say things like, as it was in the past, so it will be in the future. And they're referring to the, to the exodus. They're saying that the future redemption will be like the former redemption, at least in some ways. Now, two of the the passages where this future-oriented exodus motif is employed are Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. And really, Isaiah 40 is the beginning of a major section in Isaiah that's going to talk about this at length. And Malachi is significantly shorter, but it, it begins in chapter 3 and goes through chapter 4. So you're talking about these two sections of these two Old Testament prophets that are talking about this future redemption. And what's significant about this for Mark's gospel is that Mark cites both of these new Exodus passages at the threshold of his account. Right In Mark 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, even before going on to verse 2, when it says the beginning of the gospel, what's interesting is that the word gospel that Mark uses is found more often in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament writings. You know, it's found there more often than any other book. So this is a special theme in Isaiah. Uh, it's not always translated gospel there. Sometimes it just says good news or, uh, you know, happy tidings or something along those lines. But it's the same word when translated into Greek. When you look at the Greek Septuagint's translation of it, which was done by Jews, they used the Greek word euangelion, mm-hmm. which is the term that Mark uses. So already Mark has sort of tipped his hand here. He said, this is the beginning. You know, that gospel that you heard the prophets say, God was going to accomplish in the future. This is the beginning of it right here. And then he goes on to cite these Old Testament passages. He says, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is a citation of Malachi 3.1. Then Mark goes on and says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's a citation from Isaiah 40, That's right. verse 3. So, as I said, this this cites the beginning portions of these new Exodus sections in these two major prophets. It's amazing because uh, uh, here it's Yahweh uh, uh, basically being revealed through Jesus, technically speaking. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly where I wanted to go with this. Um, you know, but one thing I want to say... Before that is, it's important to recognize that these passages are situated at the beginning of Mark's account. Uh, we often don't read very closely, but this this is huge. Number one, a prologue in in the ancient world, and certainly in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, prologues were significant in determining the trajectory of the rest of the work. They were setting the agenda, the program, and they were providing a window through which you're to look at the rest of it. I mean, think, for example, of just how bad off we would be if we had the book of Job, but only from chapter 3 you know, through chapter 37 or something like that. We would basically be in the same position as, as Job and his three friends who are sitting around trying to figure out what's going on here, right? The reader is privileged because he has the first two chapters, which tells him 
why all of this is happening, right? So the reader's supposed to be reading the book of Job in light of those first two chapters, which set the stage for what's happening on earth and in Job's experience. Well, Mark is doing the same sort of thing. But when I said people don't often read too closely, what I mean is, while Mark's gospel will cite the Old Testament numerous times, and not just cite it, there will be numerous allusions to the Old Testament, what's critical to notice here is this is the only time that Mark, as the narrator, cites the Old Testament. Otherwise, what Mark does is he cites the Old Testament on the lips of various figures, usually Jesus. So he's recording what Jesus said and and does and what other people say and do. But for Mark, then, this this text kind of tells you uh, the ultimate principle that Mark is using in the organization of his account. In other words, remember what John said. John said that Jesus did many other things. He said all sorts of things. And if we tried to include everything that Jesus said and did, we wouldn't have enough room, you know, to write about them. And so all the gospel writers have some principle of selection. You know, we're going to focus on this theme. And so we're going to choose those sorts of things that Jesus said and did that relate to this. And so Mark is telling you at the beginning of his account what it is that he primarily has in view. And he tells us then that this is the fulfillment of the new Exodus. And now, uh, when you look then at the New Exodus section of Isaiah, which is principally Isaiah 40 through 55, there's two interesting things that you learn about this future New Exodus. In the first place, this Exodus is going to be led by a figure who is frequently referred to as the servant of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this is an interesting thing because Sometimes the phrase servant in Isaiah is used to refer to the nation of Israel. But at other times, principally in what are known by scholars as the servant songs in Isaiah, there's a, there's a change where the servant is no longer the nation, but a particular individual who is going to save the nation. And so those texts in Isaiah are Isaiah 42 Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, verse 12. Now, in uh, the first of these servant songs, which is found in Isaiah 42, it's actually echoed by God the Father toward the end of Mark's prologue. In Mark 1, 11, at the baptism of Christ, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the Lord Jesus, the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son right. in whom I'm well pleased, right? which harkens back to Isaiah 42, 1, where it says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my servant upon him, and he'll bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Right. So this is uh, one example of the servant being a reference to a particular individual. And notice don't miss, this is, has special relevance to your Muslim viewers, that this servant is going to be the Savior not only of Israel, but of the Gentiles, right? So he's, he's not just coming for Israel. He is coming to Israel, and his ministry will be conducted in Israel. He won't go outside of it. But the benefits of what he's doing is going to have worldwide significance, Right. And then the last servant song, I won't go over all of them, but the last servant song should be one that everybody's familiar with. It's 
the text that talks about the substitutionary suffering of this servant, right? That this servant is going to give himself as a ransom for many. And again, you see this being echoed in Mark. When Jesus in Mark 10, 45 uh, tells the disciples why he came into the world, Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's an allusion back to Isaiah 52 through 53. So this is the first thing that Mark, or excuse me, these uh, new Exodus passages in Isaiah tell us about the coming Savior. He's going to, in a special sense, going to be the servant of the Lord who will accomplish redemption, not just for Israel, but for the entire world. That's right. But what what becomes really interesting, and this is the issue you already uh, hit on, which is how Mark really begins, right, is that this future figure is not merely going to be a servant, but the one who is going to be a servant is going to be the Lord himself, right? And that's already indicated by the passage in Isaiah 40, verse 3, that Mark cites, when it says that the voice that comes in the wilderness saying, prepare the way, he's, he's preparing the way for the Lord, and in the Isaiah text that this is coming from, the word for Lord in Hebrew is the covenant name of God, Jehovah, right? Some scholars would say uh, Yahweh, some would say Yehovah, but the point is it's the covenant name of God. And Mark is saying that's who this figure is. And that's a, th- this is not an, uh, an innovation on Mark's part. That's already apparent from the book of Isaiah. This one will simultaneously be both servant and the Lord himself. All right. So uh, uh, I have more to say, but I, I didn't know if you wanted to interject. But uh, Oh, no. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm this... enjoying really this. And uh, you might want to, I mean, we have about seven minutes left for part one. Do you want to uh, quickly interject the thought about Exodus 23, 20, for instance, and how that connected yeah, so this is this is huge. So scholars will sometimes debate the the nature of this composite citation because that's what you're getting here in Mark 1, 2 and 3. You have not one prophet being cited but more than one. And so it's quite obvious that he's citing Isaiah and Malachi and the question is is he also citing Exodus 23 verses mm-hmm. 20 through 23? And what scholars will point out, for example, um, Ricky Watts, I have his book actually sitting right here. It's called Isaiah's New Exodus in Mark. Uh, but there's all sorts of discussion, not just Watts. But uh, so the, the question, the wording is very similar to Exodus 23.20. So the question is, is Mark citing that? Well, it's already the case in the Old Testament that Malachi is reflecting on that passage. And so whether or not Mark has that passage directly in view is kind of unnecessary to really resolve because the Malachi text that he cites already is dealing with that text, right? right? So you're already, in some sense, dealing with Exodus 23. But here's the significant thing to note. In Exodus 23, God says to Israel through Moses, he's telling Moses this for the benefit of the nation. He says, I'm going to send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Right. And 
when you look at who that messenger is, and we've done this, we have a whole series of shows that we've done on this where we look at who that messenger is. In Hebrew, the word is melach, and sometimes it's translated angel, but that's misleading to modern viewers. The word is just messenger, and it doesn't tell you what kind of being is in view. It, it's used for men, it's used for the heavenly hosts, it's also used for God. And so you have to determine from the context what the nature of this messenger is. And it's evident from Exodus 23 that this messenger is a divine person, because God says you're to listen to him, you're to hearken to him, he, you're to render to him absolute obedience and not rebel against him. And here's the reason for that. This one will not pardon your transgression. Right. So the assumption is he has the prerogative to withhold forgiveness because my name is in him. And that's a powerful and, statement. And that's, yeah, that, that is a pregnant statement. In the Old Testament, God's name stands for God himself. For example, sometimes when the Old Testament says uh, God is going to dwell in the temple with his people, elsewhere it, it expresses it by saying that God is going to put his name there. His name is going to be in the temple. It's another way of saying God himself is going to be there. So for God to say that his very name is is in the angel. It's inherent to him. It defines him. And on this basis, this angel, this messenger, has divine prerogatives and is to be given absolute obedience. I mean, it's huge. It tells you who he is. And we know from other places, Exodus 3, that the Melach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, identifies himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Moses asks him his name, he says, I am who I am. But now here's the, here's the profound thing that happens in, in Malachi. Notice that in Exodus 23, 20 through 23, it's the messenger of the Lord, the divine messenger, who's preparing the way for Israel, right. God's servant. But in Malachi, it's like there's a reversal of roles. Now you're told that God is going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant, exactly. the angel of the Lord. Right In Malachi 3.1, the Lord says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger ahead of me, and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, you know, the messenger of the covenant, Vamelach Haborit, you know, he's going to suddenly come to his temple. He's going to show up on the scene, mm -hmm. and you know, it's like he's going to clean house. And that's what Mark, or Malachi goes on to say. Uh, you, know, you better be prepared for his coming because it's almost like this one's going to come in and overturn tables, right? <laughs> if yep. he doesn't like what he sees. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's basically the upshot. And isn't that what Jesus does in Mark's account, right? That's right. That's right. Well, uh, so uh, when Mark says this at the beginning of his gospel, he's introducing the figures of John the Baptist, who prepares the way as a representative Israelite, and Jesus, who then ends up stepping into... Uh, on the scene and being portrayed as the angel of the Lord who delivered Israel out of Egypt, who Malachi called the very Lord himself, who had come to his temple. Yep, yep. Uh, that's amazing, really. And uh, I wish we can finish, uh, um, you know, the thought. But if you can hold on to it, brother, we have about a minute uh, and uh, 40 seconds. And I want to turn my attention to the moderators. I want to thank them, of course, for the hard job they do. We have a certain Ali Ibrahim. Uh, I want him to be blocked immediately, immediately. Uh, the language that he's using is just not appropriate and not acceptable 
at all. Um, uh, brother, um, in the next half of the show, which is our podcast, what do you plan on talking on? So what I'd like to do then is look at perhaps one pericope, one account in Mark's gospel to kind of illustrate how Mark presents Jesus as that new Exodus figure, namely the servant who is also himself the Lord. Yep. So we'll look at Mark 6, 45 through 52. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, I hope everybody's enjoying what our dear brother is doing here and showing you that just the gospel of Mark alone from the get-go, we already see the Lord in Christ. We see the divinity of Christ. We see the Old Testament being uh, basically exegeted and revealed to us and the powerful, powerful prophecies dating all the way back to Moses' time, actually. If you talk about the messenger of the covenant, and I love how my brother mentioned it, that he's the messenger of the covenant, not just any covenant, a blood covenant. And that's extremely important here that we need to uh, remember. And only our Lord came, of course, to fulfill that part of it. Brother, thank you so much uh, for uh, being with us for the first part. Those of you who are listening to this pod- uh, uh, podcast, want to thank you for joining us in Let Us Reason podcast. Uh, next week, we will continue with part two. Of course, if you are with us here in studios, next week will be soon, like within the next few seconds here. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.